This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 17, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, online news editor David Grimm joins us to discuss why researchers are potty training cows. After that, we have researcher Peter Teske. He's here to talk about the drivers of what could be the biggest animal migration on Earth, the sardine run off the coast of South Africa. Now we have online news editor David Grimm. He's here to talk about potty training cows. <laughs> Hi, Dave. Hey, Sarah. All right, we're already laughing, but it's not silly. It's serious. Why would we need to tell cows where to go? Well, cows, as you may have seen or heard, make a lot of waste. <laughs> they pee a lot, they poop a lot. And that's not so much of a problem if they're out in the field. And actually, it's not always a problem when they're in a barn setting because the way barns have operated until sort of recently is cows are sort of confined in these stalls or they're sort of tied up. And so they can only sort of excrete in one area. The problem, which is kind of a bit of conundrum, is that as barns have tried to become more humane and let cows have more of a free roam in the barn, and so maybe you sometimes have 100 or more cows roaming around a barn on these concrete floors, they're pooping and peeing everywhere. And that's not only sort of a health issue for the cows and actually for people too, but when urine and feces mix, it actually creates ammonia, which is a very toxic chemical, both for cows and for people. And it, ammonia can become nitrous oxide, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. And so ironically, by trying to improve cow welfare, we're also sort of hurting the environment. And so the question is, can we get cows? <laughs> if we could get cows to sort of excrete in just one location, it would be a lot easier to clean it up or store it to use it like as fertilizer or other types of things. Right. So when they were confined to stalls, they were, you know, there's a grate that would take away the waste. Now they can't do that. So what if we put the grate over there and then somehow the cows went over to that grate, did their business and then went on with their lives? How hard is this to do? Where do cows sit on the animal smart scale? Do we know? Well, you know, you can never compare animals to animals because you can't compare intelligence across species. But I think it's fair to say that a lot of people, maybe even a lot of scientists, didn't put a lot of faith in the cow brain. And I think a lot of people and a lot of scientists really didn't even think cows were capable of controlling their bladder. So the whole idea of potty trading cows was seen as a non-starter because 
how can you potty train something that can't even control when it's going to go? Okay, well, we're talking about it. So someone must have figured it out. In the last five or 10 years, a team in Canada and a team in the UK had basically done some preliminary work. One team had basically gotten cows to sort of look for treats after they peed. The idea was a cow had realized at least that it was going to the bathroom, which was a, was a step. And then another team had basically gotten cows to when they were in a specific location to go to the bathroom in that location. But holding it is the big thing. You know, that's what we really need cows to do. We need cows to be able to hold it for maybe potentially a minute or a few minutes, walk to a place where the cow latrine is, and then defecate or urinate there. And nobody had achieved that sort of holy grail step. So that's what happened in this latest study? Exactly. So this is a team, mostly of researchers in Germany. And what they did was they actually built a farm, a small version of a farm at their institute. And then they took about a dozen or so young cows, so calves. And what they did first was they, they basically just trained the calves to sort of associate going to the bathroom in this specific location, which they called the Mulu, <laughs> which uh-huh. I love. Uh, but basically, it's a, it's this sort of patch of astroturf. It's a square patch of astroturf. The cows have to sort of enter a gate to get in there. And the idea is when the cows were in there, if they went to the bathroom when they were in there, they got a treat, basically. They were able to train 10 cows pretty quickly to be able to do this. So the cows were like, okay, I'm in here. If I go to the bathroom in here, I get a reward. And then the next couple phases were, can we make cows walk down a long hallway or relatively long hallway, about five meters long, and hold it that whole time until they get to the Mulu and then go to the bathroom. And actually, remarkably, I don't know how long it took, but you know, I think it was maybe a dozen or a couple dozen attempts. And what they did was that if the cow went to the bathroom before they got to the Mulu, they got this gentle spray with a hose. So there was a there was sort of a negative reinforcement, right? They don't like that. They don't like being sprayed with water. And the researchers were able to train 10 cows to basically hold it, walk down this hallway, enter the cow commode, and go to the bathroom. Okay, so they're now human toddlers, basically. (laughs) Exactly. And in fact, the researchers say they actually do better than about two to four-year-old humans, or about the same as two to four-year-old humans, and better than some young children at actually learning to be potty trained. So five meters is a distance, but I would assume that, you know, a commercial scale barn would be a lot bigger. Is a cow going to be able to go that distance? Well, that's the big question. Can this be really sort of scaled up to the real world? Because first of all, as you say, Sarah, they've got longer distance. If, if they're at one side of the barn and the potty's all the way to the other side of the barn, you, they could have to hold it for a long time before they get there. Second of all, there's a lot of other cows in that barn. And so they have to kind of muscle their way past maybe a hundred cows to go to the bathroom. And so it's unclear whether just getting a treat is sort of incentive enough for them to go through all that work to do this in the real world. Well, what is the scale of this problem? I think about that half of the ammonia emissions, at least in Europe, come from cows. And as we said, you know, that can create nitrous oxide, which is a harmful greenhouse gas. And there have been other teams that have done calculations that show if you capture about 80% of cow urine, you would lead to a reduction, a 56% reduction in ammonia emissions. So being able to get all this urine into one place, and ideally you would store it in a tank, put it somewhere where it's not going to be contaminating the environment, there's about 270 million dairy cows in the world. So you're talking about potentially a very big problem, but also a big logistical challenge to sort of implement potty training as well. Thank you so much, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the online news editor for science. 
You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with researcher Peter Teske about the reasons behind a mass migration of sardines off the tip of South Africa. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. Today, we're talking about the sardine run, a mass migration of fish off the coast of South Africa, which rivals East Africa's wildebeest migration for sheer biomass on the move. This week in Science Advances, Peter Teske and colleagues write about new evidence for what drives these sardines to make the trip into conditions that really aren't that suitable for them. Hi, Peter. Yes, hello. Hi. How many fish are we talking about in the sardine run? It can differ from year to year, but there can be hundreds of millions of sardines that participate in this mass migration. And when they're on the move, everybody else pays attention. There are a lot of opportunistic predators. This can include a lot of seabirds, predatory fish, including a lot of sharks. There can be dolphins. Thousands of dolphins follow these shoals around. And occasionally there are even large baleen whales that eat sardines. Not only are predators paying attention to this, so are people. Tourists and scuba divers also flock to this migration. The scuba diving is a more recent development. It's, it's definitely very exciting. You can see a lot of very interesting animals that you otherwise don't see very often. This is becoming really big in South Africa. So for tourism, this is fantastic. Humans are also really just another predator that benefits from the sardine run. So there's a lot of beach fishing going on on the East Coast. And that attracts a lot of tourists as well. This is the end of the run on the east coast of South Africa? The sardine run starts on the south coast. That region has warm temperate conditions. And then they're moving essentially up the coast into habitat that shouldn't really be suitable for them. Essentially, that's subtropical habitat up there. Migrations are pretty common, or at least we notice them. People talk about birds moving, wildebeest moving, the monarch. What are some common reasons for these migrations of animals? Even though migrations can be very challenging for the animals undergoing them and mortalities can be very high, there are usually benefits. For example, the wildebeest in East Africa move towards uh, good grazing conditions where there's a lot of water where they can raise the calves. It's usually something beneficial. Even salmon, everybody knows about salmon migrations. They essentially sacrifice themselves for the next generation, but the next generation will then do well. The situation with the sardines is surprising because they are moving towards habitat that doesn't seem to be suitable for them. In the paper, you were looking at genes and transcripts, genomics and transcriptomics, to kind of figure out what might be driving this migration. What did you find out when you took a close look at these molecular markers in the fish? Compared with previously used genetic markers, where nothing of interest was found, we found some very interesting patterns. Essentially, our original plan was to 
explorer hypothesis, it states that these sardines that migrate up the East Coast are a distinct genetic stock. They might be adapted to conditions in the subtropical region. So even though sardines are considered to be temperate animals, they might be adapted to this and, and might do quite well. So we sequenced uh, hundreds of sardines that were collected all over the region, including sardines from three sardine runs. And uh, we found genetic structure. We found two major stock components along the South African coastline. But the surprising finding was that the East Coast sardines are not a distinct stock. Did what you found in the genetics of these animals match up with their behaviors? Did certain populations, they're genetically different and they also behave different? Well, essentially, the sardines move towards area to which they are well adapted. Water temperature is extremely important for these ectotherms. And what we essentially found was that there's a West Coast stock component that lives under conditions where upwelling is very common, where water temperatures get really cold. And another stock component lives on the South Coast where warm temperate conditions prevail. And the very exciting thing about the sardine run is that this is not a stock that is adapted to subtropical conditions at all. In fact, these are originally sardines that migrated to the South Coast from the West Coast. They don't want to get to a warmer place. So how do they end up on the East Coast where things can get a lot warmer instead of staying on the South Coast where things are okay? It's been known for a long time that the sardine run needs to be triggered by cold water upwelling on the Southeast Coast. So that is sort of the eastern portion of the warm tempered range. Our finding that these are essentially West Coast sardines now explains why they're doing this. These are essentially West Coast sardines that live on the South Coast. They don't like these conditions very much. It's too warm for them. But when upwelling occurs on the Southeast Coast, they move towards that area because essentially they're finding ideal habitat there. This is almost like West Coast habitat. So they're following a cold spot, but then what happens when it goes away? And that is uh, an absolute disaster for these sardines. Essentially, they find themselves in, under the worst possible conditions. They are not well adapted to subtropical conditions. And now suddenly they are exposed to water that is really just too warm for them. Physiologically, they struggle. This is really stressful for them. And in addition to this, now they're getting chased along this coastline by predators ever further north into warmer water. Are they breeding there? Are they coming back? What happens after they end up in warmer waters and find themselves under attack by all these predators? Well, it is not terribly well known what really happens to them. We know that there is a bit of spawning going on. So as long as there's a bit of upwelling, the sardines do okay. They are multiplying a little bit. But essentially, we think that most of them are essentially lost during the migration. They keep moving northwards. They probably die of natural causes. They will get eaten. It is possible that some of them eventually move back to the south coast and maybe even to their original home, the west coast. But we think that uh, the sardine run is really an ecological trap into habitat where these sardines don't want to be, where they don't do well and where they're selected against. So they don't go one way and then back the other way. They go one way and then they kind of die over there? Quite possibly, yes. It seems like their migration eventually fizzles out. There's some evidence that they move even further into tropical areas, but eventually they will most likely perish there. You actually call this an ecological trap in the title of your paper. Does an ecological trap mean that eventually this migration will stop because it's not beneficial to the animals? The thing is, even with what is essentially nothing but a, a very costly navigation error, this will keep happening because there's always movement from West Coast sardines to the South Coast and in the other direction as well. These West Coast sardines will keep dispersing to the South Coast. They will 
consider conditions they are probably unsuitable, they will look for upwelling spots and that way it will keep happening. Are there any other examples of ecological traps that animals have fallen into? Nothing on this scale. I mean, this the sardine run, if it is really an ecological trap, it is a colossal one. With climate change, anthropomorphic climate change, we're seeing changes in sea temperature. I'm sure there's changes in upwelling. Is that going to affect the run? We have to admit we don't really know exactly what is going to happen. As long as there's upwelling, there will be sardine runs. We know that conditions in eastern South Africa are getting warmer. And I believe the sardine run will be ever more stressful to the sardines participating it because of the warmer water temperature. So it is quite possible that even though the sardine run will still happen, it will probably fizzle out much more quickly. Will that have a big effect on these fish stocks? It might have a big effect on the predators. In terms of the sardine stock, it seems that these sardines are lost to the West Coast population anyway. Right. They're going to die at the end of the sardine run. So Yeah, that's pretty much it. And overall, the sardine run, it may be one of the, the most spectacular animal migrations on the planet. But the sardines participating in this are still a relatively small fraction of the overall sardine population. Essentially, these are the ones on the West Coast that ended up on the South Coast. And that's relatively minor compared to the, the overall stock sizes. There's actually implications for the fishing industry of these genetic findings, right? Yeah. The sardine run itself is not so important for the fishing industry. It's, it's obviously great for tourism and uh, everyone gets to go home with a box of sardines in the end. But uh, the finding that there is a West Coast stock that prefers colder conditions and a South Coast stock that prefers warmer conditions is very important for the fishing industry because this essentially confirms previous information that there are major stock components that don't really mix freely, even though the sardines can move around quite a bit. So if you overfish the West Coast stock component, it will not just get automatically replenished from the South Coast because the South Coast sardines are adapted to warmer conditions and they will not readily go there. Right. So it means something for conservation as well then. Yeah, that's correct. Thank you so much, Peter. My pleasure. Peter Teske is a professor in the Department of Zoology at the University of Johannesburg. You can find a link to the Science Advances paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. You can subscribe there or anywhere you get your podcasts. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. 
Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.